0: Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Are you in recovery and chose to tune in for some inspiration? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you are here with me today. My name is Sarah and I am the creator and host of this podcast. I spent most of my life drinking and eventually I realized how alcohol was negatively impacting my life in many ways. One day at the age of 39, I decided I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, and I reached out for help. I have been sober since 2012, and it has changed my life in ways I never imagined. I am so happy that I got the chance to live a more comfortable life free of the chains of addiction. Today, my life just keeps getting better. Sober Gratitudes was born out of the desire to recover out loud so that others could see the hope in sobriety. In each episode, I speak with a recovered alcoholic or addict who shares how their life changed for the better after they got sober. I welcome you to subscribe to my podcast to hear these amazing stories of people from all walks of life. They too want to share in this mission to help others and to end stigmas of addiction. I promise you, you will be inspired. Whether you have been here before, or you were a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a minute to write a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again for dropping in today, and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. everyone welcome to season two of Sober Gratitudes today I have an awesome guest his name is Kevin I know I'm in real life and he is just an amazing guy and he helped me out when I was uh, first in recovery and to this day he's a dear friend and he's always on a mission to help somebody who's in, rec- who's in need of help so I just jump we just jump right into our conversation. We had some editing hiccups, so I hope you can get a great idea of Kevin's story and his message of hope. So, without further ado, welcome Kevin.
1: Things started for me uh with alcohol when I was in fifth grade uh, and when my friend's older brother came back from Vietnam, he stayed in his parents' basement of their house in, you know, within walking distance of my house. And, um, for the first year that he was home, he would live downstairs. It was furnished. It was, uh, and he would drink down there. And when he got done with a bottle, he would come upstairs and they had a couple different, uh, doors, uh, from a kitchenette, I remember, that would go out into the yard and he would scream out loud and, and smash the empty bottle in the yard and then go back downstairs. And we we knew even at you know, something was going on uh, with him, changes or, or whatnot. And uh, they just kind of left him alone, you know. And I'm trying to think of his age at the time. I'd say maybe very early 20s.
0: So when he would come up and smash the bottles, was he doing it because he was angry or because he was just...
1: I think it's just uh, things that he carried from Vietnam. We found out sometime later. It went, I have a, a, a place in my heart for Vietnam vets because back then, these guys weren't welcomed home at all. You know, they would come into airports throughout the countries. People would spit on them and, uh, you know, these guys a lot of them were drafted, you know, they had no choice but oh, yeah. to go. And and after about a year of that, you know, I think it was the fourth grade. It was after my father passed away actually. And, uh, fifth grade, he invited us down to the basement and I guess we were, we were open even at that age was to drink. Uh, so we, you know, we, uh, started to hang out with the three of us three closest friends we were hanging out with people 10 years 12 years older than us other vietnam vets so anyway uh i decided at 14 years old that i wanted to own a bar or a club or something it's just something that happened um i didn't know how i would get there the uh, uh i remember i played ice hockey in school and i played all year round on traveling teams and uh as well. And, uh, I remember telling my guidance counselor, you know, they said, well, you know, these college courses that we, you know, you're taking and, you know, you could do better or whatever. I said, well, I'm, I'm buying a bar in a few years. I don't, I don't need this. You know, I just, you know, they thought I would, I told, I told three, my, my psychology teacher and the vice principal who was pretty cool. My school was huge. My my graduating class was over 1100 kids. And, um, I told them that I was buying a bar. They thought I was nuts, you know? And, uh, you know, they probably thought I was alcoholic too, even at that age, looking back on it. But anyway, for uh, time's sake, uh, other than I, when cocaine came out, which was like my senior year, uh, we, we, uh, my friends and I all got into that as well. And, um, you know, I, I, I loved it. I loved the uh, getting to a certain point with drugs and alcohol. When I graduated high school, I... Uh, the one thing, just to backtrack a second, my father died when I was eight. So my mom worked two jobs. So I had a lot of freedom at a young age, like uh, a lot of uh, freedom. My sister, who was very, like an academic superstar, we were total opposites, but we were close. Uh, my sister never had a drinking problem; she never even did. A, she never did a drug or anything to this day. And but we were polar opposites, you know. My friends were kind of on the wild side. My sister's friends were all, you know, looking to go to college and whatnot. And um, I got a job when I was sixteen, and I I worked a lot, even into my senior year. I used to work from three thirty in the afternoon. I was allowed to at 16 and 17 and then 18. I was allowed to work from three thirty in the afternoon till six thirty in the morning at, at a local supermarket. And I, then I would walk to school and I'd be asleep by third period, but I was trying to save money, which I started to do. And, uh, I still had this goal of opening a bar and, and whatnot. Uh, when I graduated high school, uh, Graduation weekend I started bartending and for the next five years I, I took two days off a year I took Easter and Christmas day and I saved as much money as I possibly could uh, I didn't go on vacations or anything and I was a very good I was very responsible in the places I worked I was considered a very good worker <clears throat> I could hold the responsibility but when I was off duty it was a different ball game. You know, I was high. I was altered. Uh, You know, alcohol was around. It didn't affect my uh, work thing. And and that was one of the things, too. I used to think in my head, how could I have a problem? Look, I'm holding these jobs. I'm saving them. I'm trying to do the right thing. But obviously, I crossed the line. So when I was 21 or 22, 22, I think, uh, I really started seriously looking. I had saved some money. And a place became available. But I had looked for a year. I went to any place that was for sale in New Jersey just to get an idea of prices and whatnot. I ended up buying a place near where I worked in my town. And it involved the apartments. It involved land and rentals. And I was very fortunate that it happened. If it was just a deal uh, where I rented, rented a business and paid to a landlord, uh, I probably would have lasted five years and been done. However, being that I was landlord to myself, it opened up all kinds of things for me financially. However, when I opened that place the first night, I did invite my guidance counselor, my guidance counselor, the vice principal, and the psych teacher to the opening, which they came. And I wouldn't take a dime from them, but I, they said, when a 14-year-old, one of my guidance counselor says, when a 14-year-old tells you they're buying a club or a bar when they're 14. You think the kid's not going to live to maybe 19, you know, but they came and, uh, you know, congratulated me. And uh, I remember they said, we just thought you were just some crazy, crazy alcoholic. And tell you the truth, they were right. And uh, Mm -hmm. however, when I, when my name went up on the wall, I uh, really crossed the line That there was no going back from. I became alcoholic. Uh, My uh, my breakfast, which I used to call the breakfast of champions, was two lines of cocaine and a drink. It got to that point. And uh, within 18 months, I was at my first AA meeting. The strange thing is, I couldn't tell you how this happened to this day. But my bartender left the phone, which was next to one of the registers. He left it on the bar, and I just laid out the two lines of coke At 8 in the morning, because I would be there at 8 in the morning to clean that place. I didn't hire a service yet. Uh, No matter what time I got home, I was there at 8 a.m. in whatever condition. But I I laid out two lines of Coke, made a drink, and the phone was there. And I looked at these three things for maybe a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. Something in my head. And I knew no one sober. I knew no one in AA. I picked the phone up. I hit zero. I said, I need a... AA meeting to the, I said this to the operator, I need an AA meeting in Passaic County. And they hooked me up, I guess, within the group. And I wrote down the meeting and, uh, I didn't, I dumped the drink out and I, I blew the line off the bar. I didn't do it because I had come to a point where I knew I was going to be dead. And I also took over a liquor store, uh, that year too. So I had these businesses going. Direct. They were about a mile apart on the same street and directly in the middle, like the halfway point was this funeral parlor. And I knew I was going to end up there. Things were happening. I had some car accidents. Nobody got hurt, thank God. But uh, people around OD died. It was just a circle I hung up and I knew a lot of people from Jersey and New York City. I could go to I didn't miss any parties anywhere. Let's put it that way. You you named the place I was probably in it, and uh, but it opened those doors up for me because I was so young in that business. However, something came over me that morning, and I was twenty five, and uh, I went to my first meeting, and uh, I'll never forget walking in there. I didn't drink or drug that day. I was feeling it already, the withdrawal, and uh, I walked in, and I said. All I could say is I want to stop drinking. Can you help me? That I didn't know how to identify myself, and the next person was probably double my age, and um, they helped me. You know, women and to this day I remember their faces, and a couple of them became friends. A couple of them aren't here anymore uh, that passed away sober, but they helped me, and I started to go to meetings and things changed for the better. And I stayed in the business that I was in. And I remember, I remember they asked me when I was first coming around, if I would go to rehab and I said, well, I got these businesses, you know, I'd like to try it with the meetings, which I did, so I detoxed in the meetings. And um, uh, the thing that kept me, and my mind was all over the map and I remember I was clean, maybe eight days, maybe 10. And I didn't know what was going on, but I, I made the meetings and and I didn't drink that day. And somebody said something and I had things to deal with. I had a DWI to deal with. Uh, and I don't know what it was. I, I realized this could work. And, um, Uh, The thing that I was going there an hour a day and I didn't use that day. I was amazed with that. At eight or 10 days, I started to feel like this could work. And I didn't add to that pile of crap I had to deal with from my drinking and drugging. I didn't add to that for eight or 10 days. And that opened up for something like this could work, you know. And I didn't have any questions with it. I believed what I was hearing. I didn't really question. These people seemed happy in their stories even though some of it was incredible, some of the things that happened to them, but they stayed sober. And, and I was amazed with that. And I believed them. Maybe it was blind faith, or I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm glad I was open minded enough. Um, jumping ahead a little bit, things got better. I, I refused to let anybody leave my club uh, and drive drunk. So we basically, I would drive someone's car home, and I'd be followed by one of my employees, and at least get the, they get them home. They were going to do it anyway, and I was very grateful all the years I spent, decades really, that no one got killed or hurt somebody on the way out of my place because I would have a problem living with that, and I didn't want the fine, you know, the the law aspects coming into that. Uh, and I knew yeah. that didn't give two shits what happened outside their doors, but I wasn't one of them. Uh, I took it seriously. If I was going to stay in that business, people are going to get home all right. So uh, I don't know how many people I drove home over years. I could be a couple hundred, maybe more. I don't even know. <clears throat> anyway, after about two and a half years, I got like close to three years. And I got bored with the meetings I was going to and um, stopped going completely. Just about three years, a little under maybe. And things were going all right. And, you know, they always said, they did say, watch out for resentments. And uh, I got a resentment. Couldn't tell you what it is today, but it was a business thing. And hit me a certain way. And I called up at nighttime. I called this guy up that worked for me that had a brain in his head. He was a big guy. And he was supposed to work the following night. I called him up and I said, look, I'm getting wasted as soon as I get up tomorrow morning. I'm paying you $300. Keep me out of a cop car. So he agreed with that, and he uh, stayed with me. But I went out and tore it up. Now, nothing really happened that day. Like, I didn't get arrested, but let me tell you something. After it I there's pictures from that day that someone took, and I, I had a smile on my face, but I knew I was blowing it inside. And it was coke involved, and – uh, the guy that I uh, stayed out with me all night, I remember he fell asleep at one point in my place, and I threw some, poured some Zambuca on his shoes, lit him up, and that woke him up. Luckily, it didn't turn into a ball of fire, and I had forgotten about that. I was brought up on uh, social media in the last three months. I forgot about the little thing with the Zambuca, which basically ruined his boots, but uh, uh, it could have really went sideways, thank God it didn't. <laughs> You know, yeah. but they were laughing about it. I says, yeah, I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel like laughing when I woke up the next day. When I woke up the next day, I knew I, I, knew AA worked, and I knew I blew it. And it was a horrible feeling. I'll make a long story short. For about three, four hours, I sat with the 357 with hollow points in it, uh, thinking about ending it. And uh, I remember I took the gun apart, oiled it, put it back together, made sure it operated. I stuck it in my mouth, where I would stick it in, under my chin, and I had it cocked. And I remember thinking, a little pressure on this trigger and it all. And I knew that that would do it. So many thoughts were going, it was like a dark day, a dark day of the soul. And I... So many thoughts, thousands were going through my head, you know, regrets, resentments, two that stood out was AA worked and I threw it away. And the other thing was, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't want my girlfriend was like business when I was, you know, uh, and and I threw myself into that and and I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. Uh, The other thing that kept jumping out was my mother and sister, they love me. I didn't live with them. My sister was married and I was on my own at 19. Uh they loved me and if I pulled that trigger they would visit a you know my grave and see you know we loved him but he couldn't get over his addictions. And that would be it. That'd be the end of my story and uh that kept jumping in my head, you know, in this 3 4 hours whatever it was. It was just uh it was a dark day. Let's put it that way. For some reason, I, thank God, I knew AA worked. I threw it away, but I, I put the weapon away and I went back to a meeting in my town that I knew people at. And there was this gentleman, Mike, who was from like Mississippi, Vietnam vet. Who I I I, I love this guy. He's probably sober fifty something years now. Anyway, I see him and I go, "Hey, Mike, I just said that." And he go, he looks at me, he says, "Kev." He says, he said to me, Kevin, he says, I had the same look on my face as you, except I had a gun in my mouth. All I said was to him was, hey, Mike. So you can imagine the look I had and what was coming off of me, the vibe for him to say that because of hour and a half prior, I had a gun in my mouth, you know. Anyway, I went in. I told him I'm coming back. And this was in December 1988. I knew what I did wrong. You know, I I gave up, I stopped going to meetings. I didn't go through the steps with a sponsor. That night I got a sponsor and I never looked back from that. And, um, I've been around since, uh, been active member of AA ever since. I was lucky I got the chance. Um, and I'm grateful for it. You know, if I need one of the tools that I've learned, you know, thank God for, thank God for the people I met and in my network, you know, how to change my day. All I have to do is one of the things I was told, how was it when you woke up having that last drink? And if I think about that for five, five minutes, how I was in that room, whatever's going on today, doesn't feel that bad, you know, and I don't have to go to that often, but you know, Once in a while you do, you know, I got to give myself a reality check when a circus comes to town, you know, is the, uh, you know, the parade in my head, which can come occasionally, but there's ways out of it. You know,
0: yeah.
1: I was very, you know, it's been a while. I mean, the years start to scare you, you know, and uh, my last few girlfriends never saw me drunk or high and I'm married now, you know, my son's going to be 15 next week. And, uh, never see me drunk or anything. And, uh, we've discussed it with him. I brought him to meet some meetings, uh, earlier in his life. He understands what's going on. You know, my wife is not, not an alcoholic Mm -hmm. or or a drug addict, you know, and they very supportive, you know, uh, luckily I I've been asked to be a sponsor, uh, which is help my sobriety. That's, that's really what it is. I, I take no credit for their sobriety. I just told them what I did, you know, and working with others, you know, the old timers used to always say, you better know what you're talking about because you're dealing with people's lives. And, um, I agree with that to this day. You know, uh, my ego doesn't get into uh, the mix when, when I'm working with someone, you know, uh, and I keep it simple for them, just like it was kept simple for me. And I'll leave one last thing. I've mentioned this. Well, probably wow. uh, you may have heard it before. You probably did. And I mention it sometimes at meetings um, where I knew a friend that was older than me. Like I said, I hung out with people that were older. And this one guy was married a few times, never had children, came into the rooms, got a few years, went out, never came back. He tried to come back once, but he just had a resentment with someone and never came back. While he was active, you know, he became active again, and he got a he got cancer while he was out there. And it was for, when they diagnosed it; it was the point of no return. He went back to other substances besides alcohol, and he was medicating himself. The cancer would have been curable but he passed that point of no return because of his addictions. He ended up in very critical condition, and we got a call. My sponsor, and I got a call from his wife, said uh, his name was Mike, and Mike wanted to see myself and my sponsor, not necessarily at the same time, uh, at the hospital. So I went up near my old hometown, and visited him, and he was hooked up. You could only go. He was in very critical care. They called it, and you could only go in for twenty minutes at a time, and then you had to leave. So I went in, and he was hooked up to machines and so much stuff, and his eyes were closed. I just sat there with him, and a nurse came in after I guess twenty minutes, said, "You have to leave now, uh, sir." And I she says, "You could say goodbye to him." And I said, "I, I was afraid to get close to him because of you know everything that he's hooked up to." She ended up making some room. So I went up to this guy and I knew him for decades and I kissed him on the head. I said on the forehead. I said, Mike, it's Kevin. I love you. And I'll see you on the other side. As I'm pulling away, his eyes open and he's focusing. He goes, Kev. I I said, yeah, Mike. And I said the same thing to him. He looks at me. He says, Kev, I should have stayed in AA. And that's the last thing that he said. He died 20, about 22 hours later. But when I left there, I was in tears for a couple miles. Part of it was like I felt bad for him because he blew it, you know. And part of it, I felt grateful that I was in AA. And and one thing, I I always say this. I don't want my last thoughts on this planet to be, I should have stayed in recovery. I don't want that to be, I should have stayed. Because that means I blew everything. And that would be the last thing, you know, my family would remember. Yeah, he was clean for X amount of time, but he couldn't maintain it, you know, and, uh, sometimes <laughs> that one more time will kill you, you know, and, uh, that's
0: anybody a... listening
1: to this, uh, believe me, I'm rooting for you.
0: Oh, Kev, that's the, the amazing. I, yes, I've heard that story and I forgot and I love hearing it. I need to hear that story because you know what, when I, what, the, yeah. when I hear that, I, I know how lucky I am. Because I know too, if I'm on my deathbed, having had gone out, you know, and 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 threw everything away that I've, <clears throat> excuse me, acquired, you know, internally, like my, how my soul and my spirit and my heart and like the that that re- relief of the chains of addiction, if it, if that all came back and I was laying on my deathbed and I, I don't want to say I wish I right. stayed in a, in the program that was working for me. I don't want to say that. So that, that story helps me, you know, so in, in a way that, that man would die in vain You know, I remember thinking that was also going through my mind, driving today. away from there. So,
1: you know, that's something yeah. I'll always remember. And that's the stories you hear in recovery. You know, there's certain things that have stood out for a long time, you know, that I've heard, you know, where I heard somebody that uh, a young man that, Got sober in a coma, you know, and he uh, ended up in prison for killing a family in a drunken car accident. And he had to live with that, you know, and he didn't know what happened when they came into his room in the hospital. He was in a coma for six months and uh, found out that the two cops that were at his foot of his bed were there to guard him because evidently at the time it was a highly publicized case he survived the family got killed some children got killed and they cut him out of the car and they said if this guy wakes up he's being charged with vehicular homicide six months later he wakes up and um, they said go the two cops he he thought he was in his room and uh, the young man says "Uh, what what are you doing in my room that one cop goes to the other go get the judge we can arraign him and uh, the kids now he's like realized he's not in his room he's strapped to the bed judge comes in arraigns him on uh three or it was either three or four counts of vehicular homicide and the kids now he's screaming what are you talking about what are you talking about they don't say anything but they come back in his room maybe 20 minutes later half hour and they threw a stack of newspapers on the foot of his bed and he was on the front page of all of them that he killed this family he had no recollection he he detoxed in the hospital in coma, but he went right. There was no bail. Oh my God. Went right from the County. I, I'm sorry. The hospital to the County jail to trial. And he did, it was either seven or uh, seven or nine years in prison. And when he came out, I heard his story at a place. There was over 300 people there. You didn't hear a pin drop because I, that could have been me one night, you know, and I never forgot him. Oh and he was, God. I was about 30 at the time. Yeah. Uh, I'm 61 now, you know, and uh, I remember thinking that could have been me, you know, that could have been me. And I would have had a problem dealing with that, that guilt, you know, Uh, I would have had a real problem, but I became thankful, you know, and that's why I drove people home from my bar that wanted, I didn't want that to happen. And and thank God it never did, you know.
0: Oh, well, Kevin, this has been a great, great uh, conversation.
1: You know, proud to know you, you know.
0: Aw, oh, thanks, Kev. I'm so proud of you, and no, and I'm so proud to know you. I, I'm so humbled. All God right, bless Kev, you and we'll enjoy family. the rest of the day. It's a beautiful all right, one. Kate. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety, sober gratitudes. podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it.